Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, Roots of the Spirit community. I'm really excited for today's episode. I had the golden opportunity to have a conversation with Jason Ward, who is a birder, writer, and the host of Birds of North America. Born and raised in the Bronx, his love for wildlife began at a young age as he fell in love with dinosaurs, an infatuation that provided him an escape from the obstacles growing up in the South Bronx. Now he gets to share his love for modern-day dinosaurs with the public in his web series, Birds of North America. His mission is to change the way the public views wildlife and blaze a trail for future generations of children growing up in unserved communities. Without further ado, welcome Jason Ward. Jason, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here as well. I appreciate you. I've been following you on social media, watching your show, Birds of North America, and your enthusiasm and passion for your work is so contagious, and I'm just so excited, and I have so many questions. Well, that also makes me excited and nervous at the same time, but I am here. (laughs) I am here to answer your questions. I appreciate you mentioning the passion and and enthusiasm. I don't come from a super like academic background, but what I do have and what I do bring to the table is that genuine passion for what we're doing out there with, with this work and just the desire to be able to share that with as many people as possible in hopes that they also catch a little bit of that passion and it it infects them as well. That is the ultimate goal. Well, it definitely shines through very brightly. So that's amazing. I created Roots of the Spirit podcast as a safe space to have honest conversations about identity, race, racism, and social justice to ultimately inspire change in our lives and communities. Although the first thought that comes to someone's mind when talking about birding may not be race, racism, and social justice, I definitely see a connection. Mm. And I would like to talk about that. But first, I want to just establish how I became acquainted with you. We haven't actually met in person. But as I mentioned to you when I emailed you, I started following you on social media after I saw a post of yours on Facebook. It was actually through a mutual friend, Audrey Peterman. I became acquainted and became friends with Audrey when I worked for the National Park Service, which I worked for 12 years and was so thrilled to learn about she and her husband, Frank, being the authors of a book called Legacy on the Land, A Black Couple Discovers Our National Inheritance and Tells Why Every American Should Care. That was equally as exciting for me as well, seeing her repost some of my work because I haven't met her in person, but I've heard so many just glowing great things about her. So to send her a friend request on, on Facebook and then shortly afterwards for her to notice my web series and for her to share it on her platform was one of those like glowing endorsements that you get that, you know, you know that you're doing good work out there. So that was exciting for me. Before we dive deep into your fabulous passion and career, I'd like to go back. You mm-hmm. grew up in the Bronx. What was your experience growing up from a family, but also a community perspective? I love the Bronx, and it's very obvious to anyone who knows me. I live in Atlanta now, and, you know, New Yorkers in general, when we go to a new place, it's like we can't help but let everyone know about where we're from. There's this 
pride that New Yorkers tend to have about where they come from. So yeah, no matter where I am, I'm wearing t-shirts that say the South Bronx on it. Uh, my phone case has the Bronx written on the back of it. So I'm, I'm very proud to be from the Bronx. And it's because growing up in the Bronx made me who I am today. It was the ultimate character builder. It is why I am able to adapt quickly to changes in my environment without missing a beat. It's very fast paced, as anyone from New York knows. New York often gets painted as this cold, uh, hard place. And there is some hardness to New York, but New York can also be a very friendly place as well, a place full of community, full of people who care about their community and care about one another as well. So you, you get a little bit of everything. My personal experience was complicated because we grew up very, very poor. So the South Bronx, the congressional district that I grew up in was, and I think is still one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. So I grew up without cable, without you know, multiple sneakers to wear for the school season. So I, I missed out on certain things, but I what persisted throughout my childhood was this love for wildlife, whether it was cheetahs on TV or wolves or killer whales or birds. If it lived in the wild somewhere, I was fascinated with it. And it wasn't something that I shared publicly with all of my friends because it wasn't really deemed as something cool at that point in time. So instead of, you know, kicking it with them on the wildlife tip, I would instead play sports with them. I could always play sports. That's how I meshed with the cool crowd growing up because here I am, this little nerdy kid who sits at the front of the class with this afro and my way into the cool crowd was playing sports. I was able to do that and, and kind of assimilate with the rest of the group. Although I had this secret secret was I was a super animal nerd. Like there was nothing better than going to the Bronx Zoo as a kid every Wednesday. Well, every Wednesday that we could go. The reason I say Wednesday is because at the time, and I don't know if it's still this way, but at the time the Bronx Zoo was free on Wednesdays. So that was the only time that we could go. And that was like Christmas to me because I would drag my parents and my little brothers around the zoo, pop quizzing them at every single animal enclosure we went to, having them go over to the animal enclosure and cover the, uh, the little sign that tells you what the animal is, and, and like forcing them to have me guess the animal and stuff like that. So, so cute. <laughs> little, yeah, it's like so on brand if you know me now. But yeah, like that kind of stuff is, is a lot of, uh, of what my experience was like in the Bronx growing up. You know, every neighborhood has good and bad things about it and the Bronx is no different but instead of casting like a dark shadow over it nah I think the Bronx there's a lot of a lot of good about the Bronx, a lot of pride my mom you know is Puerto Rican and Puerto Ricans are unrivaled when it comes to pride <laughs> so you know there's just a lot of pride going around a lot of festive music and just different cultures and yeah, I, I love the Bronx, definitely. It's like nothing else. Absolutely. I mean, I've been in New York five years and all of those stereotypes that you talked about, like the hard coldness, I mean, mm -hmm. it was shattered instantly. Mm. And I feel like there's such a strong sense of community and pride anywhere you go, especially yeah. in the Bronx. So that's beautiful. Kicking it on the wildlife tip. That is the cutest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> now I have buddies that I could just nerd out with 
whether it's in person on or, or in social media, and we can just geek out about the fact that peregrine falcons like fly so fast that when they strike pigeons in the air, it looks like pigeons explode and stuff like that. Like we can just sit there and just like what like our minds explode over and over again when we think about these things. But as a kid, I couldn't run up to the homie and be like, hey, did you know that woodpeckers have four toes, two, two that face forward, two that face backwards? They would look at me like, get out of here, man. Like, what, what are you talking like, about? <laughs> that you is doing? so cute. And I've, I have, I just have this feeling I have inside that you weren't the only one who was intrigued by dinosaurs and birds, yeah. wildlife, but... True. Perhaps there was not a platform or a narrative, and I feel like you're really blazing a path for young people, and I want to take that journey with you and allow our listeners to walk along with us. That's a very key, that's a very key point that you just made. I I wasn't the only one, and I'm seeing that more so than ever now. And growing up, there, there wasn't any form of representation. When I would go to family members' houses and we would watch Nat Geo or Animal Planet or Discovery, I would watch it by myself because there's no other images that we can relate to. You know, children are very impressionable. We kind of gravitate towards images that we can relate to and images that look like us. There was no images that looked like us on those channels. However, if you change the ESPN, you see your favorite athlete dunking the ball, scoring a touchdown, and they probably look like you do. Or you turn on VH1 or MTV, and your favorite artist probably looks the same as you do as well. So you want to emulate that. And I think it's time for this to start changing. And we need more representation on more platforms. And I do think that there's a nice, budding, growing group of talented individuals across the country who are people of color, into science, and who are ready to all grab the torch and, and inspire this next generation. I literally have chills and I feel like what you're saying is so powerful. And interestingly enough, every single interview that I've done, representation is at the heart of the conversation. Yes. Seeing yourselves or not seeing yourselves has the ability to shape the trajectory of your entire life. As a young person, you talked about how you were fascinated by wildlife and I read dinosaurs etc mm-hmm. um so what were your educational aspirations and as a young person were you thinking about a career in that area you know that's a really good question um so yeah it started with dinosaurs and it started with dinosaurs at a super young age maybe about four or five years old is when i really first became infatuated with dinosaurs the only problem was i couldn't go outside and watch them or study them. <laughs> you know i was 65 million years too late <laughs> when it when it came to that but there were insects there were mammals like squirrels or maybe chipmunks and there are birds no matter where you go no matter what environment you live in whether it's in a open country or suburbia or an urban big city you have over a hundred species of birds around you you just have to know where to look that was the most fascinating thing their accessibility and the fact that they are modern day dinosaurs as well and we can get into that a little bit more a little bit later (laughs) i can i can explain that very simply but yeah growing up no I, i i didn't know that it was a field that was available to me nor did I know or was I aware of how I would even, you know, attempt to become what I was watching on TV with the crocodile hunter or 
the Crack Brothers or Jeff Corwin. I had no idea how these guys were able to uh, become who they were on TV. But instead, I wanted to be a football player. I wanted to play football. I wanted to be an athlete. So I wanted to play football or baseball growing up. Those were my two favorite sports. And, you know, that's pretty normal for a, a young person of color growing up in the inner city. Yeah, you know, throughout school, I, as I mentioned earlier, was always that Steve Urkel nerdy kid sitting in the front of the classroom getting picked on and everything like that. And, you know, that was the same until I got to high school. And when I got to high school, things started to change. I became captain of the football team and things seemed to be trending in a different direction. And then we got evicted. <laughs> and I don't, and that's not a laughing matter. It's just, I guess, my response to looking back on things now, knowing what has come out of it. That eviction changed the course of everything. Yeah, it, we bounced around for a long, for about five, six years after that. And it, it just kind of flipped a lot of things over on its head. And into my adulthood is when I realized that I really should take a better look at this passion and love that I have for wildlife. It never wavered. It just laid dormant for such a long time because there were other pressing matters that I had to uh, pay attention to. You know, my I have five siblings in total and four, I mean, three of them are younger than me within all, all within two years of one another. So I'm like the de facto oldest with my older brother and sister already had moved out of the house. So when we're going through these rough times, I have to be the pillar of strength for my younger siblings and you know, that took precedent over any kind of love or infatuation that I had with, uh, with wildlife at the time. You know, everyone goes through peaks and valleys um, and, and birds, weirdly enough, remained a source of light for me. Whether, you know, I, I can remember back to second grade. I, was, I went to PS 107 in the Bronx and me walking through a parking lot at Western Beef and there were a whole bunch of gulls, ring-billed gulls and herring gulls flying over the parking lot. And one of them pooped on my book bag, right? <laughs> and, and at the time, that was cool to me. I, I looked at that and I'm like, hey, that's dope. Even though I just had a bad day in school, that kind of brought me out of it a little bit. And during my stay at the shelter with my family um, is when I had that moment. Just in everything that I've researched, this moment when you were 14 and spotted mm -hmm. a peregrine falcon mm -hmm. eating a pigeon on your windowsill. So here I am, I'm in this, this shelter and everyone has peaks and valleys and, and, and low points in their lives. And definitely, definitely living in the shelter was not a high point for me. But there was this one moment where I'm just walking through the room in the shelter and there are feathers just flying by my window. I'm like, okay, what's, what in the world is going on? So I go to the window to check it out. And about 25 feet from me, there's a peregrine falcon eating a pigeon, just de-feathering it. They pluck the feathers off before they eat because no one wants a mouth full of feathers. Mm -hmm. So they pluck all of the feathers off before they eat. And I'm, it took me a moment to process what was happening. And when I did, I was like, wait a minute, there's the fastest animal on this planet, 25 feet from me, like just devouring this pigeon. You don't have to travel to all of these exotic locations and have all of this money to be able to enjoy wildlife. You can do that right in your backyard, no matter where you live. And here I am in this urban setting, watching 
a live National Geographic documentary unfold right in front of me. Wow. So many thoughts that are flooding my mind. Your life experience, and then you have this strong desire. You are drawn to wildlife. It seems as though you're pointed in the direction of football or baseball. And then this happens. But also one thing that stuck out in my mind is you said you went to the zoo. I've read that you used to go to museums in your classroom and you did not see yourself reflected. So how did you reconcile all of that? Like you have this desire, you're pointed in this direction. Do you feel as though this moment with the Falcon is somewhat of a confirmation of your passion? There were several moments like that, that sort of reminded me that it kind of jolted me and reminded me, hey, also love this. You're also really good at this. You, you kind of tend to put things on the back burner occasionally. And that's admittedly, that's what I did with wildlife growing up. I, I knew I could play sports. I knew I was into music, but you know, everyone else was as well. So it, it was, it was a little difficult. And did I truly love those things or was I just doing it because everyone else was? That was the, the question that I had to ask myself often. I, wanted to study sports journalism, but quickly realized that I don't love it. So it was, it was something that I never even considered because of the fact that there was so little representation in that field, in, in, in the wildlife uh, nature kind of field. So yeah, I never looked at it as an attainable goal until I kept on getting those reminders. And actually, I purchased my first, my first pair of binoculars as an adult. It was six years ago. So it took a while for me to have this epiphany and for me to want to chase it full throttle. And that was only gifted to me because of the fact that I had just received a promotion in this uh, uh, corporate job that I was working in, and which I also didn't love doing either. Um, so I received this promotion, and this promotion granted me with the free time to be able to explore certain passions that I had. And it also granted me with a little bit more money to pursue those loves and passions that I had. So my brain immediately went to, okay, how can I join like a a football league or a softball league in town? And then I started to like do some research and try to figure that out. And then one day I said, you know what? I wonder what people are doing when it comes to wildlife in the city of Atlanta. So I did a little Google search here and there and I found the Atlanta Audubon Society, people who are trying to create a better world and a better habitat for birds and the habitats that they live in. And I looked up their calendar and they had free bird walks all over their calendar. You didn't have to do anything but show up. So to me, that was the perfect opportunity. I went on Amazon, I purchased a very cheap pair of binoculars, about 50 or $60, and I just showed up and it took off from there. So it just kind of that, that freedom to be able to explore and really to use this cliche term to spread my wings, I guess that's what set the wheels in motion. Otherwise, there, was, there always seemed to be distractions that were preventing me to fully explore and chase my passion. And I think that's largely due to the fact that there wasn't any representation. Therefore, I looked at it as a field that wasn't necessarily open to me. So now you are the host of your own show, Birds of North America. You're the creator of Tricky Bird ID on Twitter. And you work, and I'd like to ask, in what capacity with the Audubon Society? Yeah, so since January, I've been working with them. I am the uh, Community Relations and Outreach 
coordinator. So essentially, and I'm based here in the Southeast, even though Audubon is based in New York and DC. So since I'm based here in the Southeast, I get to work with both the Atlanta and Birmingham, Alabama chapters in different kinds of programming that basically reaches out to the community, specifically people who look like I do, and hopefully blaze some trails so they can pursue a career in conservation as well. So up until this point, in my opinion, my life's work, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's on social media, on YouTube, or with Audubon, I'm trying to usher in the next generation of wildlife lovers and animal lovers. So here in Atlanta, we're working with uh, local historically black colleges and universities and trying to create the next generation of conservation stars that are coming out of those universities as well and and get more diversity in our field you mentioned it earlier you know our, our my field is predominantly white it, it just is and i think that there are folks out there who would love to see that change and we're going to make that happen so what is your experience when you're in the colleges when you're talking to young people like what are some of the common questions or misconceptions just your overall experience so far, I haven't had tons of experience with college age students yet. That's right around the corner. Mm-hmm. But just with kids in general of different types of ages, they, they view it as something that's boring, right? Until they get out there. And when they get out there and they have someone like myself or, or somebody else as their guide, we're able to put things in a way where it's exciting to them. And they, I've heard people say, well, well, I thought this was going to be boring. This is actually pretty cool. I've also heard kids say, yeah, this is the first time that I've ever used binoculars. So it, it, there are things like that where you may think that this is cool. You just never even used binoculars before to be able to see it. Because sure, you don't need binoculars to be able to see birds. Mm-hmm. But if you do have them, it kind of unlocks this world of nature that has always been around you. But now you're getting a really, really close, intimate look at it. So I think that that tool, just a simple pair of binoculars is, is a major key in, you know, kind of nurturing that, that love for the outdoors for a lot of kids. And I think that for the most part, they've had people come to their schools and talk at them, right? And talk down to them and tell them, yes, you should follow this path and you should become this kind of esteemed professor and blah, blah, blah. And it, it goes in one ear and out the other, especially if the person doesn't look like they do. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and this is what I'm going to tell a lot of organizations over the next six to eight months when I'm doing these talks in different places. If you want to increase diversity and you want to reach out to communities that you call underserved and underrepresented, hire people who look like those people because we speak their language. I can go to these schools and I can talk to these young boys and girls and I speak their language. I am on their level. I've been exactly where they are. So it, it hits a little different coming from me. And it also means something more to me as well. I have more invested in this. I just don't want to take a photo with them and have a photo op to make my organization look good. I genuinely care if these kids progress and grow to love nature, or at least understand it a little bit better. So yes, hire from within the community and you'll see your results change. What you're doing is just groundbreaking. It's so important. And I just feel great knowing that you're out in the world doing this first of all thank you so much and and secondly they've messed up now because i'm not going anywhere 
So, so they've awesome. opened that door. They've opened the door, and I'm here now. So. Oh gosh, that's so great. Speaking of open doors, you said something. I think an analogy. So when you said this, it's like you invited me to this world. You said unlocking a world when you look through the binoculars. Can you take me on a journey of what unlocks when you look through the binoculars? Yeah, yeah. So all right, you're in a park. It's let's say it's eight in the morning, right? So it's eight in the morning. It's really early in the morning. It may have just rained the night before. This is like the perfect birding scenario for me. So just bear with me here. It's relatively cool. And you're walking and you start to hear birds singing. Now, no matter what time of year you walk through a park, you're probably going to hear bird song. That's because of the simple fact that birds sing for one of two reasons. They sing to either attract a mate or to defend and establish their territory. Well, they only need to attract a mate during the spring and early summer. But all year round, they have a territory to defend. So they're going to be singing in the morning. Their, their songs travel farther in the morning than they do in late afternoon and into the evening. That's because the sun hasn't heated up the ground yet and stirred up all this debris. Before that time, their song travels farther and clearer. So they sing early in the morning. So you're there. And these songs can help you triangulate where these birds are located. Some of these birds aren't... I mean, most of these birds are very, very small. Let's take Carolina Wren, this four-inch-long brown bird who likes to skulk around and hide in the bushes and the shrubs. But when he sings, it sounds like he's in your ear. It's a very, very loud bird. So you're hearing these songs, and you're trying to figure out where the bird's coming from, and then boom, you see a little bit of movement in the bushes. That is the point when you raise your binoculars. You raise your binoculars, you lock in on that bird, and you see it, and you see it convulse as it belts out this song from the top of this little tiny thin branch. And it's, it's a dinosaur, you know, because you're looking at it and you're much bigger than it. So it doesn't seem scary. But imagine if you were a caterpillar crawling around. That is the last thing you want to see <laughs> is this big, giant brown dinosaur just coming down to you. And I keep saying dinosaur. Let me explain that very briefly. Yeah, I'm in, super curious. <laughs> yes. So scientifically speaking, in order to be categorized as a dinosaur, you need to fit two characteristics, just two. Your body has to be covered with either feathers or scales. And when you walk, whether you're on two legs or four legs, your legs have to be underneath your body or bird-hipped. Um, so you can't be lizard-hipped. So like crocodiles and alligators, they walk with their legs out to the side. They're not closely related to dinosaurs. Any creature that you see in Jurassic Park or, or, or in dinosaur movies that are walking around with their legs out to the side are not dinosaurs. Anything that lived in the water back then was not a dinosaur either. That'll get me into the weeds talking about all these different kinds of things. <laughs> but there are only, there's only one group of animals living today who fit those two characteristics, and it's birds. Birds walk around with their feet underneath their bodies, and they also have feathers and scales. Hmm. So they have the obvious feathers, and their legs are scaly as well. Birds' feet and legs are, if you just looked at a, 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 an owl, not, maybe not an owl, but like a hawk's foot or a heron's foot, that's a, that's a raptor foot right there. That is, they're essentially the same thing. So we're looking, we're looking at these modern day dinosaurs perch on these trees and just belt out a song. And here right now in the summertime in Atlanta, it's disgustingly hot, but 
on occasion we get a day like today where it's about 80 degrees and the sky is just blue that like triggers something within me to want to get out there and you get out there and you're walking around for about 45 minutes and you've seen and heard about 35 40 species already and you just have to know what to look for what to listen for as well and where to look as well so yeah you can see this bright red summer tanager or there's a majestic red-tailed hawk flying overhead and turkey vultures who are flying miles without even flapping because they're riding the winds. And then you see uh, a beautiful bluish indigo bunting and it's perfectly sitting in the sunlight. And it's, it's kind of blowing your mind because as a bird nerd, you're seeing a bird with blue on it. But you also know that birds don't produce blue pigment. So you know that what you're seeing is strictly a result of light refracting off of that bird's feathers, that bird's brown feathers, and appearing to your eyes as blue. There are things like that that are constantly amazing. Birds never, ever, ever cease to amaze me. There's always something cool to learn or observe with birds, and there are so many of them, so it never gets boring. And they migrate, right? So the birds that we're seeing in the springtime, they come through in the spring, they come back through in the fall, and then you'll see them again until spring. So you kind of grow to miss them after a while. So it's just never ending cycle with them. That is so beautiful. I feel like <laughs> I was walking in the park with you. That is so fantastic. Well, and we, I, can, we can arrange that one day. We, we yes, I, trust me, I'm gonna be there. I totally will. And speaking of that, I understand your brother Jeffrey is also a birder. Yeah. He's in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Still lives oh, in New York. You spend a lot of time in Central Park. I was fascinated to learn about the variety and diversity of birds in Central Park. Central Park has arguably the highest diversity of birds in New York City. That and Jamaica Bay. But Central Park is, is a little bit more impressive because it's right in the middle of Manhattan. You know, in Jamaica Bay, you can kind of understand it's a little bit far out of there's this big body of water that's next to it. So that's a little bit understandable. But Central Park, there's never a time in Central Park where it isn't noisy. It's always noisy there. And to have over 250 species that can be seen there year round is just, it's ridiculous. And it's evident when you look at those numbers that there are birds out there. You just have to, just have to be patient. I recommend that everyone, no matter, no matter your level of expertise when it comes to your experience or knowledge of nature and wildlife, get out there amongst nature, even if it's for just five to 10 minutes, and even if it's just a quick walkthrough in a park. Get out there by yourself, put your phone in your pocket, turn it off, leave it in your car. Um, just take a couple deep breaths and just be there. Just be there. That's all it takes. It's very therapeutic, being able to escape and just bask in, in the... Uh, kind of meditative nature of nature is part of the reason why I do what I do as well. I love that. I just feel like, especially in a city as congested and busy and tense as New York, yeah. to have this amazing oasis in the middle of the city is such a gift. And yeah, and it doesn't have to be Central Park. There are parks all around and the birds yes. are everywhere. And I love this quote that I heard you say, or you either wrote, which you are an incredible writer, by the way. Thank you. Just like when you're speaking, it's so captivating and you speak so colorfully. But there was a quote where you said, birds to you represent the ability to escape and go somewhere. You know, that 
can be traced back to my love for them growing up. So to backtrack a little bit, I, I mentioned that my love of nature and the outdoors started with dinosaurs and progressed. From that point, it progressed, it progressed to insects, big cats, no matter what it was, I loved it. If it lived in the water, if it, was, if it crawled on the ground, if it was a snake, I loved all of them. Birds though, they had this ability to, this ability to do just that, to escape. And if they lived in a, an environment that was less than suitable for it, it could change that. It have, they have these wings and they can fly to greener pastures and they can create a new home for it that fit their needs a little bit better. And that was something that I wanted to do. You know, life was rough growing up in the Bronx. So I wanted to be able to escape as well, but I couldn't. I was in this bubble that you occasionally feel growing up in a rough neighborhood in the inner city. So that ability to escape was something that I would, I would use that ability and I would kind of live vicariously through those birds in their ability to escape. And actually my favorite bird, you know, fit that narrative better than anything else. The peregrine falcon, its scientific name or Latin name is Falco peregrinus. And that translates to wandering falcon. It's a wanderer because it can be found on six of the seven continents. No matter where you go, this falcon is there. It's a very powerful flyer. Sometimes boats are out hundreds of miles at sea and a peregrine falcon flies by. Wow. So this bird can literally decide, eh, I'm just gonna go to Cuba today. <laughs> and just do it. So it's gonna take some time. It's not gonna be super easy, but it's gonna do it, right? So upon seeing some of those birds in New York, you wonder, where have you been? You know, what have you seen? Mm. What have you experienced uh, um, in, in the short life that, that you've lived up until this point? So yeah, I was able to kind of transport my mind to those places through the birds. Switching gears, because I want to talk to you about something you said on one of your episodes. And I think like it is so unfortunate that some of your passion and enthusiasm may encounter some resistance. You said yeah, yeah. on one of your episodes that there are times when you walk in a room and don't feel comfortable or you're mm -hmm. leading a bird walk and you're meeting in a spot and the people coming mm -hmm. to attend the walk walk right by you, not yeah. thinking that you were the person leading the walk. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, definitely. So that still happens, by the way. Both of those things are still true. So in the beginning, you know, if you look at my name on paper, Jason Ward, you don't really jump to any preconceived notions unless you're a birder. If you're a birder, which is predominantly white, and you see Jason Ward on a paper, you're like, cool. You're not even thinking about the race of the person because you just assume that it's going to be a white person. So when you show up to these bird walks and there I am, I don't dress, I don't, first of all, I don't look like your typical birder, nor do I dress like your typical birder. Could I? Sure. I could run into Bass Pro Shops and get the, the, the swagless package of like cargo shorts and <laughs> some kind of button-down flannel shirt. I'm not doing that. That's not Wagless how I dress. package. <laughs> exactly. That's not how I dress before that, and that's not how I'm going to dress currently. So I'm, I'm sitting there in, like, some basketball shorts and a Nike shirt, and people, are, they're walking by me, and they're like, ah, they're not even thinking about it, I don't think. And you can tell that they're confused, and I've watched this happen. One time, my brother was even there with me in Atlanta while this happened, and I'm like, just watch. And there's this, you know, they're walking around, they're trying to figure it out, they're looking around, and there are people in the park, there are other folks. So they'll walk up to someone else and you'll see them 
maybe ask about the, the meaning of the bird walk and that person won't know either. So they'll point in a completely different direction. And that's where I'll step in because I don't want you to walk to the other end of the park uh, looking for us when we're right here. So it's always funny to, and then sometimes I do have my binoculars around my neck and they'll see that, that's the calling card. If you have some binoculars around your neck, you know, you're there for one reason. So they'll walk up to me and they're like, hey, are you here for the bird walk? And I say, yeah. They'll introduce themselves and they'll say, I'm Jason Ward. And they'll say, oh, oh you're, you're Jason. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you're going to be following me around for the next three hours. Get used mm. to it. So um, there's that. And, you know, there are meetings or conventions that I go to uh, in which I am the only, there are about, what, two, 300 people in a convention hall. And I'm the only person of color there, typically speaking. Um, Occasionally, I'll see someone else, like another black guy or a black woman, walk in, and I'll look up, I sigh a little bit, and another head nod, and they're like, "All right, cool. We'll keep an eye on one another while we're here." Um, so there's there's still that that occurs, and their their imposter syndrome is real. It, it really, really is. But I've I've been able to combat that by developing this sense of ownership in my place that I am in currently in this world. I belong here. I have you know, earned the right to be in this place. I know my stuff. I'm good at what I do. And because of that, I'm going to walk around like I belong in this place. But I still have to have that conversation. It's just not automatic. That takes time. It takes time. You know? and, and, it, and it's, I think it's a double whammy because I don't come from a background in academia. So like, for example, this past uh, springtime, I was offered to be on a panel called Ask a Scientist. And I was all for it. But I did mention to the organizer, I said, hey, I don't have a degree, by the way. So they were completely fine with it and it didn't matter to them. But then I'm on a panel, with, you know, sitting next to five people with doctorates and masters and just saying, hey, I'm going to try my best to wow the audience and talk about birds. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. But yeah, there, there's still some, some kind of inner pep talk that needs to happen to reinforce the fact that I do belong here. And what I'm trying to do with all of this is make that journey easier for the next group of people who are coming through. Um, I've also created a group me group full of about 40 to 50 Black uh, scientists, people who are in different levels in their careers, whether it's undergrad, grad school, or field research. And, you know, they're, they're located in different parts. I was going to say the country, but they're actually different parts of the world. And we're all converging as one group. And it's a safe space for us to just talk to one another and get frustrations out in a forum where you're not being like judged for your opinion. So that's the kind of stuff that I want the next group of people to experience. I want it to be easier for them because it's, it's challenging at times, but I'm the right, I think I'm the right person for the job because I, I'm developing this sense of ownership and I'll just throw on some, uh, some rap music before getting my bag a little bit and I'm good. <laughs> That's all it takes. What is the balancing act between like being the only person of color in the room, like mm -hmm. hundreds of people, but I know it very well and intimately as someone who worked for the National Park Service. So I know yeah. that feeling closely. What is yeah. the balancing act of trying to shift and transform the organization, but also maintaining, you know, your yeah. 
sense of self and also not having to carry the burden of the fact that it's predominantly white and they're oh my goodness yeah let me tell you (laughs) have 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 you seen um sorry to bother you is a movie that came out recently no i've heard of it i haven't seen it there was a really there was a scene in that movie and those who are listening who have seen this movie will know the scene that i'm talking about where Lakeith Stanfield, who's the, the main actor in the movie, he is in this, 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 I guess, like telemarketing firm, and he's rising. He's a rising star, getting all of these promotions. And he finally meets the CEO, and they're having a party. Everyone's drinking, everyone's dancing and having fun. And then they are, like some rap song comes on, and they, lo- they all look at him, and they're like, hey, you can, you can rap, right? And he's actually like, nah, like, I'm, I can't rap. I'm pretty bad at it. And they're like, yeah, of course you can. Of course you can. Go ahead and rap for us. And they're like, rap, rap, rap. So he feels weird. And then he starts to rap this song that's just like N-word, N-word. He, but he actually saying the word. And everyone's like shocked at first and they stop. And then they kind of like, they get with it and they start dancing. So it's kind of that, that, that weird dichotomy to where he's like entertaining them, but also like dissing them at the same time by, mm-hmm. by I don't know, it's, it's weird. But like seeing that scene and seeing how he would occasionally have to like code switch and flip back and forth and and, like stay true to himself, but also survive in that field. That resonated with me so, so, so much because I am trying to push forth this message of diversity and inclusion in all aspects, not just in a race aspect, but in all kinds of aspects in this world that's predominantly white. So I need to be able to speak their language and speak to the people who are in charge. But I also need to be able to be unapologetically who I am as well. And that takes just, I think that just takes time and practice. I love Birds of North America. And I look back on it occasionally and wonder if I'm being 100% me in those, in some of those episodes. Perfect segue. Birds of North America. Let's talk about it. How did it all come about? And what has your experience been up to this point? Yeah, so Birds of North America came out of nowhere, essentially, right? So I've had this Twitter presence for about four or five years now in which I would tweet about birds. I would do this quiz game called Tricky Bird ID three times a week. And it would become taxing. But my main goal was to be consistent because you never know who's watching. And sure enough, someone was watching. The editorial director, a black woman of uh, Topic, reached out to me via DM. And she said, hey, would you like to work together someday? I love what you're doing on on Twitter. So we exchanged information, got on a phone call, and we brainstormed. And the brainstorming resulted in what we were initially planning on doing was just shooting a series of videos that kind of showed birding in a different, fresh, new light. That was it. That transformed into her hiring a director who had a film crew. And next thing you know, we're in Central Park shooting a production. Wow. And, and there are, we, we shot our, pilot, our pilots in Central Park May of last year. And two days of shooting, 10-hour days each. And the pilots went over really, really well. People loved it. And they greenlit a 12-episode first season. Nice. So I got to travel to, to the southern tip of New Jersey, to Portland, Maine. To, I got to see the behind the scenes at the American Museum of Natural History. And what we're essentially trying to do is we're trying to do multiple things. For the other bird nerds out there, give them a show where they see some of the more popular, famous people in birding, some of the rock stars, if you will, 
and show them locations where they've either, either been before or always wanted to go. But we're also talking to audiences who never heard about birding before. And we're trying to introduce it to them as well. Hey, this can be cool. There are other types of people out here doing it. And you can get into it as well. We've actually just wrapped up season two. So season Congratulations. two. Congratulations. That is so big time. Yeah. And when I rewatch some of those episodes, first, no one likes their own voice, apparently, right? So like most people <laughs> hear their own voice and they're like, ah. And then I watch my mannerisms and sometimes I'm like, wow, I do that? Like I never knew that I did these gestures or hand movements when I speak. But none of those things are major, right? Like who cares? If you like you don't like the way your voice sounds, who cares? It doesn't matter as long as people enjoy the product. But then there's a deeper criticism that I, well, not really so much criticism, but just an analytical feature that I've noticed is that I'm wondering if I'm being me. Because when I say me, there's, there's not like one version of me, right? You can't put me in a box necessarily. I'm a lot of things. I like a lot of things. All of those different interests and likes make up who I am. And I wonder if that's coming across in these web series, or am I just appealing to the, the folks out there who are already susceptible to this kind of uh, product? Does it have a, the appeal to people who look like I do, who come from where I come from? Am I speaking their language as well? That's the question that I often ask myself. I don't want to switch gears completely and come on the next show like, yo, what's good? Like, that's, not, that's, that's weird. Like, that's, I'm not going to do that. But I want to be able to appeal to a wide variety of audiences. And occasionally, I wonder if I'm achieving that with the web series. So that's my, one of my uh, personal critiques. I, I totally on. hear what you're saying and I think to a degree like that's something that everyone I think in particular people of color especially if you're on a public platform constantly questioning and critiquing but I'll, I'll give you my opinion I mean you show up and yeah. your very presence is already speaking volumes you are already making statements you are already drawing in eyes that may not have already been drawn in representation is multifaceted that is very powerful i want to go back well it's not necessarily going back but i'll just read a quote that i saw on your facebook mm -hmm. you said 17-year-old Elijah Alamin was killed by this monster for listening to rap music. 17-year-old Jordan Davis also killed for listening to rap music. I listen to rap music loudly before leading a bird walk or while on my way to a birding trip. This is why I'm afraid to go birding in some parts of America. Hashtag justice for Elijah. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. So there's no secret, right? Birding has this, I guess, progressive appeal to it because most people who are birders love the environment and want to save the environment and that's usually a more left-leaning perspective however birding is no different from any other group anywhere across the country if you take a large group you look at demographics you're going to find progressives and you're going to find conservatives and birding is no different there are there's a large subset of conservatives who quite frankly simply put do not want me birding with them simple or do not want me birding in their neighborhoods that is the most simplest way that i can put it and what we've seen is that if there is an individual who doesn't want me in their neighborhoods they have the ability 
to take violent action towards me and get away with it because I look suspicious. Hey, guess what? There's no hiding that. Birding looks suspicious sometimes. It just does. You know, we're not always birding in a massive national park. Sometimes we're in parks that are adjacent to communities. And sometimes a bird flies across the street into a tree that's located near someone's house. There are times where a bird is visiting someone's feeder next to their house. And we know that it's a rare bird. So we're looking for it. I would never go to one of those locations by myself. There was a, a bird that was spotted in January of 2017 out here in Atlanta in Buckhead, which is this really affluent community here in Atlanta. And it was being seen because it was visiting someone's feeder, this two hour range each day. I tend to chase birds. And what I mean by chase is that I see an uncommon or rare bird pop up in the area because someone else has seen it and boom, I'm there the next day because I want to see the bird as well. That bird, I didn't even bother because I don't want to go to someone's house who doesn't know me and I don't know them and just sit in their living room waiting for a bird to show up. That knock on the door is gonna be awkward in and of itself. And then what are we gonna talk about while I'm there for a couple of hours? It's just awkward. There are certain situations that I try not to put myself in when I'm birding. If I'm driving to a location and I pass through a town that has a bunch of Confederate flags flying, I'm gonna keep on driving through that town. There are times I've been birding in, uh, like agricultural country farmland and there are like a cow pasture right across the street. And I'm not pulled over into a parking space. I'm pulled over on the side of the road and hazards on and everything. And I'm looking out of my vehicle. There has been a time where I'm sitting there and I'm looking and I'm waiting for this bird to appear. In my rear view mirror, there's a pickup truck pulling up and he's slowing down. And I'm like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? Thankfully enough, that situation ended in a very friendly passerby who actually lived in the neighborhood wondering you know what I was looking at told him the species he actually had heard about it so he said how oh, you might want to check over here it might be seen over there today all right you know have a good one and drove on but it's like rolling the dice with situations like that so there's always that aspect of what if when you're out birding in unfamiliar territory and we wear that on our backs all the time you don't get the luxury of not thinking about that. We have to stay vigilant when it comes to those kinds of things. And that can be draining occasionally. I already know that there are certain places in the country that I don't want to visit. Certain places in Arizona, certain places in East Texas. Shoot, there may be certain places in Massachusetts that I may not want to visit to go birding. So it's almost as if I'm a bird and I need a specific type of habitat to be able to thrive. And I'm suffering from like a habitat loss occasionally. There's that headwind that I have to fight with, dealing with, with that kind of stuff in, in the bird world. It's frustrating. It is frustrating. But you try your best to stay vigilant. And like, for example, I won't pull binoculars out of my bag around like someone who may not know what I'm doing or reaching for. So it, it's, it's simple stuff like that that I have to be aware of, where random person may look at that and be like, ah, that's not a big deal. You shouldn't have to do that. That's fine. Don't worry about that. But yeah, until someone does mistake my actions one day and I don't live to tell about it. So I, I can't run that risk. I have to be careful. I, it's just heartbreaking that birding while Black is something that is dangerous. I've been around birders who jokingly 
have made jokes to their other friends and saying, hey, yeah, I went burning in this area. And sure enough, pulled over by the cops. Ha ha. Hey, you know what's going to be cool? I'm going to try to make it a goal to be pulled over in every county in the state of Georgia. <laughs> yeah, cool. You Gosh. do that. I'm not with it. Like, I'm sorry. That may be your cool little goal, that little whimsical goal that you can get away with. But I, I can't afford that. I yeah. don't want to be pulled over anywhere. Definitely not. Everything that you've described is really important for everyone who's listening to think about the just a greater awareness, how deep and insidious racism is that just yeah. everyday things and being in natural environments and having a passion for wildlife, watching birds can be dangerous. Yeah. Wow. Simply existing in certain spaces can, can be dangerous and if you have a black body, definitely. And I'm aware of that, you know, but it's, I think the ultimate goal is greater than the fear that I have for being in certain environments. So it doesn't stop me one bit. And I hear you so loud and clear. It's literally like when you were describing your experience, it's almost like I went through a journey myself because it felt really like heartbreaking and yeah. thinking about it in that aspect. But then also it's like, I feel like I sit up straighter knowing that you're out there doing what you're doing. I love that you're able to rise above it. First, I, I appreciate it. That's, you know, that's exactly the goal. I also want to say that it's not clearly, you know, it's not just me, you know, you for having a platform with this podcast as well. That's extremely important. Other people who are in the science community who are putting in work across the country, a lot of them I, I consider my friends, they're doing just as important work as well. So there's tons of Black men and Black women, just people of color out there in general who are doing extremely vital and important work. Thank you so much. There are two organizations that you mentioned. I'm familiar with one, Outdoor Afro, but also the Feminist Bird Club. Can you describe the unique aspects of both of those organizations and how you work and or bird together? I've been loosely involved with Outdoor Afro. I've done maybe one event with them, but they're an organization who wants to get Black folks or people of color, I'll say, outdoors in general. That's it. Simple as that. No matter what capacity you decide to do that, if you're biking, if you're hiking, rock climbing, doesn't matter. Come one, come all. Their goal is to just take back our ownership of these wild spaces. These, these, these public wild spaces belong to everybody everybody and we have just as much of a right to be out there as our white counterparts do feminist bird club is a super inclusive organization based in new york but now they're spreading and their goal is also like a come one come all kind of thing feminism is not just for women right men can be feminists as well so if you are a feminist of any kind and you are a supporter of feminism and the lgbtq community, you are welcome to those bird walks. And they have bird walks in New York City and Chicago and a whole bunch of different places. And I've been on one of their bird walks. My brother leads bird walks for them. It's just a bunch of cool, young people who are just accepting and they just love everyone. They have um, patches that they premiere every single year, a brand new patch. And the proceeds of the patches go to specific organizations. Each year is a new one. Last year, the proceeds of their patches went to Black Lives Matter. So, I mean, they're putting their money where their mouth is and they're supporting other organizations who are doing work across the country as well. There's actually another one, Latinx Hikers, started by a lot of people in the Latin community here in the Southeast. They travel as well and, and they just go hiking 
in certain places. I haven't met up with them yet, but I follow them strongly on social media. And we're going to link up one day and, and look at some birds. I'm sure it's, it's bound to happen. Sweet. I think that it's so important to be able to provide resources and outlets for people who are listening who want to become more involved. So with everything that's going on in our world and politics and race relations with our environment, what can we learn from birds? We can learn that just be patient. Be patient. Take a deep breath. And there's more going on. There's more happening in the world that is deserving of our time than what's happening on our televisions and phones. If you are having a rough day or if you do see some news on TV that upsets you, try going to a park and just being. You don't need binoculars. You don't need a, a camera. But if you do have one, that's a bonus. And watch what's going on around you and, you know, try to interpret it if you want to. Try to figure out what's going on. There are a lot of organisms out there experiencing life in different ways, and they have no idea about what's happening on your TV. So once you're out there with them, you kind of assimilate into their lifestyles and you become one of them for the moment. And you forget all of the nonsense that's happening. Like Atlanta is notorious for having arguably the worst traffic in the country. And I remember sitting in bumper to bumper traffic one day and being upset about it and looking out of my window and seeing about 15 barn swallows just swooping around these aerial acrobats catching insects right above the freeway, just doing their thing. And for a moment, I transported into their world safely, of course, because I'm driving. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to relax a little bit. It was immediately meditative and it calmed me down. At the same token, I wondered how many other people were seeing what I was seeing or how many other people were seeing what I was seeing the way that I was seeing it. Because Horace, you see something swoop by your car, you're going to notice it's a bird. But do you know what's going on? You don't have to know the species, but do you know what's happening? Do you know that these birds are just flying around, catching insects? Like, do you have a deeper understanding of what's going on? Do you, is there a level of appreciation that you have for it? That's what I'm trying to get more people to establish or to understand. I want more people to have a level of appreciation for a random bird that flies by your car when you're in traffic. That's beautiful. Jason, what are the roots of your spirit? Um, that would be the Bronx. First and foremost, that makes me who I am. It's so it's the Bronx and anything feathered. Emily Dickinson says, hope is the thing with feathers. And that is something that I live by these days. Being able to share my passion for birds with the next generation. It's also one of my roots. Being able to color the conservation conversation. That's something that's also important to me as well. That is truly so very touching. Can you please tell our listeners how they can follow you on social media, any apps you're involved with, mm -hmm. and how to watch Birds of North America in any way that we can support your amazing work? Yeah, so I'm on all the social media platforms. I'm uh, mainly on Twitter, but I'm also on Instagram as well, both Jason Ward and Y. And, you know, on Facebook, just by searching Jason Ward. And yeah, Birds of North America, new episode premieres every Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. All you have to do is type in Birds of North America and binge watch all of season one and watch a little bit of season two as well. Nice. This has been an absolutely beautiful conversation. I'm bursting with gratitude. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.